Good morning, everyone. We're gathered today uh, to remember what the Lord's done for us. A year ago, um, on January 30th, I shared a bunch of the scriptures, including more than we're covering today, about the Lord's Supper, what the issues were in Corinth, went into a lot of details. Today, I'm going to cover some other material, but we go over some of the same verses, and we're going to look at the Lord's Supper, often misunderstood because of everything that's happened throughout church history. We want to get down to what is this about and what's happening. So the title here if we, uh, is the Lord's Supper, Remembrance, Proclamation, and Hope. Those are the three things we want to learn from the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for graciously providing for us everything that we need concerning life and godliness. We do pray for our pastor, Eric, who's recovering from surgery. May that go well. May he regain health and stability as you bring that healing to pass. And we thank you, Lord, that we can remember what you've done for us today and learn from your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passages that we covered are covering have to do with remembering the Lord's death till he comes. We'll start with verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So the, the idea of receiving and delivering, the supper, communion, is something that came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The church throughout the centuries, remembering the Lord's death, are doing what was given to them by the Lord of the church, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. The mention here is that it was delivered or handed over. And I'll point out in a bit there's some irony there. But the what was handed over by the Lord is the institution of his supper. We'll talk about the Passover that this was grounded in, the Passover meal that they were having together before the Lord was uh, crucified and his gathering with his disciples and also the betrayal. Now, the word for betrayed there is also reminding us that Judas, one of the 12, turned against the Lord and handed him over to the authorities. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind us of the context, and that's verse 22. Uh, let me cite that, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-two b What's the issue in the church at Corinth? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So the word shame was used in this context. So the connection is this. In Corinth, as I preached a year ago and went through all these details, some of the people had a very fancy supper 
or their rich friends, and some others were sitting over here in the corner having something less. And so Paul's rebuking them about that, and here as he explains what the reality is, he mentions the betrayal of the Lord by Judas. And the application is pretty difficult, but they needed to hear it. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So Judas betrayed and shamed the Lord and the disciples, and Paul wants the church to not be like that, not to treat with uh, shame and humiliation people who the Lord has brought to himself. And the word shame means to humiliate. If God has saved someone and added that person to the church through conversion, that person is a blessed and precious gift from God, and we are to love one another. And it's not our job ever to humiliate a fellow Christian. I have a statement here in my notes. The point of the Lord's Supper is what he has done for all who are his. To shame and despise anyone who is the Lord's is shameful. Shameful. There's irony here. Paul handed over the institution of the Lord's Supper to those who trust Christ. Judas handed over Jesus to the religious authorities. Now, why don't you turn with me to Luke 22, and we'll read 21 through 24. Luke 22, 21 through 24. I'll show you how this sort of thing creeps in to gatherings of Christians, and we want to avoid it. Luke 22, 21 through 24, I'll read it. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. But look at verse 24. This really cuts to the quick. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. Now, that's rarely quoted when you're looking at the Last Supper, but it's pertinent. So as this warning that Jesus will be betrayed is issued, here they're arguing who's the greatest. What we take away from that, by the way, the same argument happened in Luke 9.46 after the Mount of Transfiguration. Who's the greatest? The idea is really bad idea to discuss that. What would be more appropriate is to realize that, a, but by God's grace, any one of us could be the Judas. Not be enamored with our own would-be status. And that's precisely the issue in 1 Corinthians uh, that comes up in chapter 11. There were those who thought they were the greatest in Corinth and they had their fancy banquet while the less prominent people had very little 
at all, and we're being shamed. So that's our point. We don't shame anyone who the Lord has brought to himself. Now let's go to verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper has been kept by Christians since Jesus himself instituted. In Acts 2.42, they broke bread together. The Lord's Supper is rightly considered a means of grace. And one of the ways God graciously changes us is not through some magical, mystical process, by, but by us remembering who we are, why we are, and what it means. Remember me, Jesus said. Now, this remembrance is grounded in the saving acts of God. At the Passover, and I'll cite this a little bit later, Israel remembered why they were a people. They were brought out of Egypt, according to the promises of God, by the mighty, powerful work of God to save a people, to bring them to himself. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, God saved you. He brought you out of bondage. He took any one of us, each of us, excuse me, and brought us to himself. Now, what does it mean here, giving thanks, and this idea of blessing? One of the things we get wrong is we don't understand the Hebrew background and what it means to bless. And so I want to spend a little time on that. The idea is this. At the Passover, they were thanking God, and there were several cups. This was the third cup. We'll get to that in a bit. And they are blessing God by saying, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has, and then whatever, declaring his person, his character, his mighty deeds, and so on. I'll show that to you. So think about this. We often say, I'm going to bless the food. That's not strictly accurate. We don't make food something it wasn't. I think a lot of that comes from church history and high holy churches where, you know, we're going to turn this into something. No, this is remembering the blessing of God and declaring him to be blessed who provided. Think about that. I think it's very helpful. Let's go to verse 25. The same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So here we come to the cup, the third cup of the Passover. Typically, there would be four. Over the years, we've preached on where that comes from and what they were. 
Today we're going to stay focused on the Lord's Supper, but I will say this. The fourth one happens later when we're gathered with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we know he's coming. There will be a fourth cup. Right now, this is the cup of blessing. We remember what God did to make us his people. That's what we're remembering. Remember the Lord. Remember what he did. Remember his laid down life. Remember the significance of the shed blood that thereby we have forgiveness of sins. The word for remembrance is used um, in Luke twenty two nineteen and uh, one Corinthians eleven twenty four and twenty five our verses and Hebrews ten three. Those are the times that are used in the New Testament. In Hebrews ten three, it's saying the old sacrifices were a reminder of sins year by year. Every year, the high priest had to go in, day of atonement, bring a sacrifice, uh, bring it to the mercy seat. And because it had to keep happening, the author of Hebrews says it's a reminder of sins. But this cup is a reminder that Jesus died once for all to deal with sin. And he dies once. And we'll get to that more in a bit. So we remember the why and how we're a people is that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all. And we're now remembering uh, every detail of how sinful we were. We're remembering how great God is to take us out and bring us to himself. Like the Passover, he brought us out. He brought us through. He passed over. I'll read some of that to you. Um, it says in Luke twenty-two twenty, that at the same time he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're under the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 describes that. Here's somewhere you could turn. Let's read this together. Uh, as you read, I'll read it to you. Exodus 12, 11 through 14. The, the ground of the Lord's Supper is in the Passover. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at a Passover meal. So let's read what that signified. Exodus 12, 11 through 14. <clears throat> now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, Exodus 12. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. Notice this. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Who passes over? God in his judgment. 
No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So here in Exodus 12, you see the Passover instituted based on the saving act of God to judge the world, Egypt, the false gods, to pass over through the blood that looked forward to the blood of Jesus and to bring a people out through the water to himself. So this repetition of the Passover meal was based on what God did. Now, to apply that to us, Jesus says that he is celebrating. And he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's no required day, no required place, nor there is a, nor, nor is there a restricted frequency as often. Wherever you are, as often as you do, wherever it is done, do it, imperative, in remembrance of me. So like Israel remembered why they are people, what it took to make them a people, the mighty saving act of God that brought them out, we remember why we're a people, what God did, the price he paid, the shed blood of Jesus to bring us out of sin, to bring us out of darkness, and to bring us into relationship with him and one another. Let's go back a little bit in 1 Corinthians to 10.16. I want to explore the idea of this cup of blessing. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10.16. The context there is some instructions to the new converts, the people who were saved out of paganism. And the issues for them, in some ways, eventually, should the Lord tarry and should I continue to have the strength to do so, keep preaching through Corinthians till I get to chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. But the point is this. The people that came to the Lord still had their friends and buddies that went to the pagan festivals. And they didn't drink to the honor of false deities. And so the issue was, now that we're Christians, can we go to the house of the pagan gods and celebrate with them? And then we'll have the Lord on the side over here too. Well, the answer is no. You can't worship two different gods. Okay? So this cup is a cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. So this Sharing, koinonia, a lot of people have heard that word. It's been transliterated often into English. Koinonia means sharing a common life together. So you can't share a common life together in fellowship and share a common life together with the false gods 
of the false religions that God saved you out of. That's the point. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. We saw that earlier, 1 Corinthians 5, 7b. So this cup of blessing is us saying to God and to one another, blessed be the Lord who saved us. Blessed be the Lord who forgave our sins. Blessed be the Lord who's provided this. We're not blessing elements to make them something they weren't. That we have to get out of our minds because it's not what's being said. This is real bread and not something turned into something it wasn't before. Dr. Thistleton says the cup of blessing coheres precisely with the context of the Passover meal. Let me skip ahead in this citation. The Mishnah and other sources provide ample evidence for the practice of using as a grace or thanksgiving at the end of the meal, the formula, blessed be thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. It's reminding us of God. It's reminding us of his power. And it's reminding us to be thankful that we're beneficiaries of his provision. Now, let me read a psalm. There are quite a few of these, but I'll read Psalm 72, 18, and 19 to show what it means to have a cup of blessing or to bless God. Psalm 72, 18, and 19. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Blessed be the Lord. It's not blessed be the bread because it's going to be something it wasn't before. Honestly, if you study Christendom and practices, some of the things are so utterly abhorrent, it's shocking, utterly shocking. Some of you have been delivered out of Christianized groups who come up with ideas more akin to paganism. And some priest utters some things over, and then something changes, and then all of this stuff. It's not instituted by the Lord. It's not biblical. It's not godly. It's not honoring to God. It's wicked. It's wicked. This is simple, accessible, and a provision for believers who bless God. And we remain thankful. So may God help us see it the way it is understood in the Bible. Another theologian says, in Jewish and Christian thought alike, it is God who is blessed. And then cites the same thing. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth food from the ground. Let me cite some more. References to blessing bread are to be understood as references to blessing or thanking God for it. Uh, And it talks about the technicalities of the Greek, but it's a a genitive. 
the cup of blessing. Thus, we're blessing God, the giver of the cup. It is not the cup that possesses a blessing that the people receive when they drink from it, but a cup which, for which a blessing, a thanksgiving, is given to God by the people who then drink from it. Blessed be God, who provided his own son as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed be God, whose own God the Son shed his blood, the perfect sacrifice that we might have hope. So that's what we learn from that. Now, I mentioned there's also proclamation. First is remembrance, what God did. Israel remembered what he did to bring them out of Egypt. We remember what Jesus Christ did for us once for all. Now there's proclamation. Let's see that in the next verse in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now that brings the next two points of our title. Proclamation is a proclamation of God's mighty deeds and the gospel itself. Until he comes, expresses our hope. Expresses our hope that the very Lord who instituted his supper is the very Lamb of God whose blood was shed to bring propitiation for sins and to save a people and to give us eternal hope and the sure knowledge that one day we shall fellowship with him in person until he comes. We, I have some statements here on the slide. We proclaim the efficacy of his once-for-all death for sins, giving us forgiveness. We proclaim our true fellowship with him and one another, koinonia, sharing of a common life together. Judas betrayed the Lord. He ran off and sold him out. He didn't really have common life with the family of God. We proclaim our belief in his promised return. Now, another thing that has sullied the popular uh, Christian world in our understanding of this is a rejection of the importance of hope for the return of Christ. I'll be talking about this when the next couple sermons from 1 Corinthians. I'm going to cover some more in chapter 6. What is it that makes a defeated Christian? Think about that. It's not what you think. We have preachers who call those who long for the return of Christ and to be with him defeated Christians. Now, what would make somebody 
who wants Christ to come defeated? Well, because you don't have faith to have your best life now. But that's false. Christians have proclaimed the Lord's death until he comes since the Lord gave these words. You're not defeated because you're growing old. You're not defeated because you're troubled in this sick world. You're not defeated because you need prayer. You're not defeated because you have financial problems. You're defeated when you start mistreating others and making comparisons. I'm holier than thou. I'm the the great Christian. That's the defeat, not the fact that we are needy. Yes, I long for the Lord's return, for him to come for us. Um, Let me cite another scholar, Dr. Gardner. In the Lord's Supper, back to the citation, in the Lord's Supper, there's a reminder, there's a reminder that the new covenant was attained at great price, my body, my blood. As Christians eat and drink, they retell their story that Christ died for them so that they may be incorporated into the covenant community. Then they also remind themselves that the Lord will return, at which point uh, symbols will no longer be required as he is seen face to face. We'll see that in 1312, 1 Corinthians 1312. Therefore, all who disgrace the Lord's Supper bring shame upon their Lord and open themselves up to his judgment. It is to this that Paul now turns, which is the judgment versus context. Some Christians shaming others over things that are not valid. Lower social status, less money, less clout, less whatever. We do not want to shame any brother or sister in Christ. We want to affirm to the Lord we need him and we need one another. The only reason any of us have status here in the body of Christ, wherever we might gather, because of what he did for us. Here's my statement. Until he comes, is an expression of our hope that we shall participate in the great messianic banquet with great rejoicing. There's also a warning about how we treat others in the body of Christ. And so, yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That should be in our hearts and our minds. Now, I have a couple of applications. It'll be from Hebrews. Our true hope is in what God has done once for all. Second, our hope is secure because of the new covenant promises. We're going to look at Hebrews, Isaiah, some other passages to make application. Today, we do celebrate the Lord's Supper and how glorious it is to know it's not about 
what sort of bread it is, not about what sort of grape juice or wine it might be. It's not about who we are compared to somebody else in the family of God. It's about what he did for us and what our great hope is and why we're so thankful to be part of the family of God. Now let's go to Hebrews 9.28, which I have on the next slide. Hebrews 9.28, and then we'll look at the background in the book of Isaiah. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly wait him. The book of Hebrews is magnificent. What a joy uh, I've had to twice in my life teach verse by verse through Hebrews. Once we did podcasts, or we called it radio back then, and uh, another time in Sunday school, a previous time in my ministry. But what a beautiful book. The point is this. There were some to whom the author of Hebrews wrote were tempted to go back to temple Judaism. And the book is written to tell us who Christ is, to point us to Scripture, and to point to the fact that what Christ did is greater in every way. The, the priests, the many priests, and even the high priest were temporary, year by year, continually offering sacrifices. But Jesus, our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, God the Son, he did this once for all. Once for all. And therefore, you can't go back to the blood of bulls and goats, to ceremonies, to pomp, to circumstances, all these things, because our faith is rested resting in Christ. Religious works, creating this uh, high-tech version of Christianity that somehow, it's just uh, confusing. It's putting people through some process that they think they're going to find something that ordinary Christians don't have. If you are a Christian, you have this now, the forgiveness of sins, the blood that was shed once for all, we believe, we remember. And it's the basis of our hope. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. If your sins are forgiven, because of the blood of Jesus, and you're part of the family of God, when he comes, he's not coming in reference to sin. He's coming in reference to the glorious sharing of that fourth cup. It still awaits. And we remember that. As we gather together and worship him, it doesn't matter who we used to be. Praise God for that. It doesn't matter what age it was when we came to the Lord. It doesn't matter what this was like and what that was like. It matters who we're trusting. And why do we eagerly wait him? 
await him. Why do we want to be with him? Because we know this world is sick and cursed by sin. We know that the world hates us. We're here as long as he determines to be witnesses and to proclaim the truth. But nothing will be as great as being with the Lord himself. So this is about substitutionary atonement. Excuse me. Isaiah 53, 11b, it's on the slide. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This is a prophecy about the servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. The many. Who are the many? The many are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is about the substitutionary atonement. Substitution means the sin that we had was born by the sinless Savior who lived a perfect life. He's not simply a religious leader. The Savior is also the creator. That's clear in John. It's clear in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. He created everything out of nothing. The Son of God. And the many will be those who believe. Not all, but those who believe. From all different kinds of people, he will bear their iniquities. The sinless Savior, the one who died for sins once for all, is buried, raised on the third day, died on the cross, appeared to many witnesses, bodily ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, which is very clear in Hebrews, is going to come again. How can you know that you're right with God? How can you know that your sins are forgiven? It's very clear in the, in the Bible. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from trusting in this sick world out there, trusting in religious works, trusting in self, trusting in anything, but only trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who did what we couldn't do. Turn from sin to the Savior and trust in him and believe the gospel. Believe what the Bible says, that those who love him by his grace, who poured out his love within us, are those whose sins are forgiven. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And know that only his once-for-all sacrifice can remove your sins and save you from God's wrath against sin. Now, in Hebrews 10, 15 and 17, we'll look again at more of this glorious truth, the new covenant. Hebrews 10, 15 to 17. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now think about this one. 
we need to have the view of Scripture that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, and when we read the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Notice what it says. Elsewhere in Hebrew, it says, as the Spirit says, it cites the Bible, the Old Testament here. The Holy Spirit bears witness. This is the covenant I will make. That's the scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired the scripture. The Holy Spirit speaks to us as, as we believe and study the scripture. Now, Christ is that very high priest. Let me read to you, before we close, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. You can turn there. You have your Bible, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. How do we know that? Because they have to keep doing it. Sacrifice, sin. Sacrifice, sin. The treadmill of religion. Verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 and verse 1, by the way. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. Hebrews 10, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. See that? For one offering he perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Who are those who are sanctified? Believers. Is that correct? Sanctified means set apart for God. When the Bible addresses in the epistles to the saints, it means to the sanctified ones. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means that we're his, and his shed blood has made us right before God through that one offering. Now, what about our hope? I said in the title of the slide, our hope is secure. Remembrance, proclamation, hope. Remember what God did for us. We proclaim the gospel through the Lord's Supper, and we state that our hope is in his return and keeping all of the promises that he made, that we'd be with him, that we'd see him face to face, that he'd come for us, and that all of the things promised will come to pass. So that's our hope. Hebrews 7.25, I'll cite this to you. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Some translations say save to the uttermost. That's really a good translation. It is forever, but it also, the word in Greek, 
signifies to the greatest possible degree. He is able, dear ones, to save to the greatest possible degree, including forever, those draw near to God through him. He intercedes for us. He lives to make intercession for us. How do we know that we'll get there? He's interceding for us. How do we know that we'll get there? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. How do we know that we can trust him? Because this was all based on objective evidence. He, he did die for sins. He was raised. He was one who ascended to heaven. This is not myth. This is not religion. It's what God did. Trust in him. So as we think about this, at the supper, we should have great thankfulness and bless God, the giver, and remind ourselves, wow, God was so good to make us part of his family. And I, I'm very thankful for that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you that we unworthy ones who have trusted in you can partake and bless you and remember what you've done for us. And Lord, may we be mindful of those who are hurting or sick or unable to be amongst us and always send prayers, greetings, cards, whatever it takes. We want people to know that they're loved and part of the family. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.